Career Curves is pleased to have Groove, maker of the Career Clarity Toolkit, as our sponsor. Are you feeling stuck or trying to figure out what's next in your career? The Career Clarity Toolkit uses design thinking, guided reflection, and career experiments to give you confidence. Go to careercurves.com groove to get started. As a special promotion for Career Curves listeners, use the discount code CURVES to receive 10% off your first order. It's fair to say that for most of us, deciding what we want to do in our careers and making moves into new roles and new companies is challenging. What if you faced additional challenges, like having people tell you what you want to do isn't available to you, or being surrounded by people who are highly negative, or being an immigrant and needing to get past visa hurdles? Our guest on this episode, Simon Shetty, Technical Program Manager of Robots at Neuro, has faced and overcome these challenges, not by luck or chance, but by design. Welcome to Career Curves, where we talk to people who have interesting careers and explore how they got where they are. I'm your host, Beth Davies, and I am thrilled to have Simon here to share his career journey with us. It includes working as an electrical engineer and technical program manager in robotics and artificial intelligence for companies like Tesla and Lyft. It includes side hustles as an entrepreneur, founding and launching his own companies. And it includes navigating through a series of student and work visas until finally receiving an EB1A Einstein visa in 2019, giving him the right to work in the U.S. indefinitely. He has an interesting story to tell, so let's dive in. Simon, thank you so much for joining me. Hey, Beth, it's a, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for, uh, for doing this. I want to start going back in time. So let's go back to your childhood, your family, and where you grew up. Tell me about that. Yeah, so uh, I had a mix growing up. I, I grew up part of my life in a farm in India. It was nothing out of the ordinary. We had access to like uh, good schools and uh, good uh, education. But in general, at least back then, and I'm talking about like 10 years ago, it was not a very mainstream trend to pursue your uh, higher studies or to pursue a career outside of India. Uh, I, I kept thinking throughout high school and like the first couple years of college, what next? What happens after four or five years? So this kind of thought process kept bugging me in that I did not have much clarity. Then I tar- started turning to things that I was passionate about and started digging deeper into that. So for college, what did you end up studying? I ended up studying electrical engineering. Well, it, it was a hybrid There's this program called Electrical and Electronics, and that's what I ended up taking up. And the rationale behind that was mainly I wanted to go hyper-focused into aerospace, but it is very uh, niche in its own sense. But at the same time, what I also thought was in my bachelor's, if I focus on something that is relatively generic or relatively applicable across areas or across streams, then I'll be better served because I'll still have the flexibility to choose what to go into. And not choosing aerospace and choosing electrical engineering, which I did, helped me because a couple years into electrical engineering, I understood that control systems was the thing that I actually liked. So, you know, you gain more clarity and you just move away from going into it just because it sounds cool to the actual stuff in it. 
Did you use internships or any jobs while you were in college to help you get this clarity? In my college days, uh, I didn't get straight A's on paper or anything like that. But at the end of the day, you know, I was spending long hours in the lab late into the night, you know, just trying to get stuff working. And, and I realized that that kept me excited because actually getting my hands dirty in the labs with the real stuff gave me more meaning to being an engineer. And I think that was really important. There is a side of you that is an entrepreneur. And you started a company while you were still in college, College Gear. Tell me about that first experience of being an entrepreneur. Why did you do that while you were also doing school? I feel like doing things is the biggest teacher of all. It gives you like evidence-based teaching about what works and what doesn't work. College festivals were a huge thing in India, and I think they still are. Typically, there's like two festivals in a year. One is cultural and one is like technical. One common theme that stretched across all of that was swag. People wanted swag to publicize it or to enjoy uh, what happened and to make money as a stream of revenue for them during that time as well. So I was basically like, what if we centralize all the swag creation and then have a relationship with the vendor and in the process, whatever arbitrage amount we make is the amount we make. So it looked like a business opportunity to optimize that system. But I didn't know anything about like the math I did was literally this T-shirt costs X and these people are willing to pay Y for it. And Y minus X is what I make. Little did I know that, okay, there's interstate taxes, sales taxes. And I was basically thinking that the net was equal to gross. <laughs> did you end up and, making any money at all? Oh yeah, a little bit. I mean, I didn't, I, I ended up not losing money. <laughs> and what happened to that business when you left college? We serviced all the customers that we had uh, and then gracefully brought it to an end. As you were finishing college, as you were saying, you had started to discover you had greater interest in controls and that side of engineering. So what sort of a plan then did you start to put together for yourself after college? I was basically like, okay, so I need to pursue something that is, you know, the next stage in control systems. I was looking at different opportunities in India for graduate education. Uh, but at the same time, I also was looking at possible opportunities for me to get top of the line industry experience and industry contact. A lot of exciting things along those lines, especially in control systems, was happening in the United States. That that made me really excited. So now you're deciding on grad school in the U.S., which of course is a huge move. And as you shared before, this isn't something that a lot of people around you had done before. How did you get the courage to make this move? I, I just did a A-B analysis of, uh, okay, what would happen if I uh, continued my education in India and stayed in India? Uh, and what would happen if I you know, moved abroad and exposed myself to uh, all the new experiences? So if I continued in India, one thing was for sure that I would not step a lot outside of my comfort zone. And uh, that would be easy sailing for me. But then I just didn't like the idea of not having things that push me. And I was feeling like going anywhere abroad was the first step for me to get exposed to a culture that is not what I have experienced so far. 
outside of my own which which would really shake me up and make me ready for the world so to speak so i wanted that experience really badly does this mean you weren't nervous about making this move i i knew that there were a lot of uncertain things but then the excitement of facing the world and learning a lot of new things somehow superseded that i i literally remember uh, you know i got on the plane and until i touched down in phoenix uh, arizona i was super super excited and i was like hey what could go wrong right <laughs> uh, <laughs> and the moment i stepped outside of that airport in sky harbor was when reality struck me when i realized that okay it's i don't know 12 pm in the afternoon and everyone i ever know and love is asleep i'm like what did i do why did i need to do this <laughs> i love though what you're saying of just the excitement and perhaps even the naivete just encouraged you to just go and let reality hit you later coming to arizona state for grad school was the first visa that you had to get so you needed to get i would imagine a student visa Mm-hmm. Tell me about that experience and and that process. Getting a student visa to the US especially during uh, the Obama administration when I actually applied I wouldn't call that as a huge sort of difficult hurdle that I had to like you know swim across it was fairly smooth sailing. Student visa is not actually a a difficult task if you are a legitimate student intending to come to the US to actually study and are going to a legitimate university for a legitimate program not at all difficult when you have a student visa does that allow you while you're a student to get internships and other part-time jobs or are you restricted solely to being a student it does but there are a lot of caveats that you need to be cognizant of tell me then about internships that you had so going through grad school in general was a pretty uh, bittersweet experience for me because when you are in a circle of immigrant students it sometimes gets a little bit uh, daunting because there are a lot of people around you that are subject to the same circumstances as you are and that breeds a good amount of negativity and paranoia and that is more contagious than optimism so all i remember hearing around me was that hey it's super difficult to get a job it's super difficult to get an internship uh, hardly anyone sort of makes it and on top of that i chose control systems mainly because i loved control systems and that was what i wanted to do but little did i know that on majority of the job opportunities in control systems belong in the aerospace and defense and aviation sector which are all protected and you need to be a us citizen or a green card holder to actually get those jobs i didn't know that i was like okay wow okay i'm going to do this and then i'm going to get in, uh, get a job in one of these fancy aerospace companies uh, and then that'll be smooth sailing but i didn't know all of uh, about all of these restrictions and that's why all this negativity further bred because i was in control systems because i'm like majority of the jobs are close to me i am following my passion here doing control systems what am i even doing the one medicine that i used to face that negativity and come out of it was to keep myself extremely busy in something whatever it is extremely busy i, I didn't want to have time to even think about all this other drama 
or negativity that uh, exists around me so i made it a point to stay out of my apartment for majority of the time and just come to my apartment to sleep and that pushed me to finding a campus job which a lot of people said no it's not possible i mean i mean it is it is possible but it's very difficult i probably gave close to 100 interviews before getting my first campus job because it was so competitive i i still remember the way i uh, bombed my first interview in india for the most part the concept of university spirit pride and tradition does not exist predominantly and in my first interview one of the questions i was asked was uh, what do you know about asu spirit pride and tradition and i'm like what what and tradition uh, and the interviewers literally were looking at each other and chuckling uh, at my ignorance uh, so i can still remember that i was like boy am i going to make it here or what <laughs> and at the same time you've got all the voices from the group that you're in that's saying it's super hard to get a job you'll never get a job now you've got people laughing at your response so you must have at that point been starting to feel pretty defeated slightly so i went back to my antidote of being busy and not thinking about it and just doing the constructive things that i thought would maximize my uh, my exposure to uh, success so after that after a bunch of interviews i got a great position and i had like a super great manager who was super understanding of everything and that was what i did until i actually started working full time uh, and what was that job it was like a business analyst in the uh, university admissions and marketing team While you were still in grad school, my understanding is that you got a job clear across the country in the US. So all the way I believe it was in Georgia mm-hmm. that had you leaving ASU at least leaving it physically. Tell me about what was happening here. Yeah, so I was subjected to this thought process that I won't get a job, right? that actually made me want to experiment with the market out there if it's true or not so what i ended up doing was uh, most people start applying okay if it's a, like a four semester masters program they start applying for full time jobs i don't know maybe in the third semester something like that what i did was i started applying um, midway through my second semester fully knowing that i won't be able to start working because i haven't graduated yet and things like that but i wanted to do a poke test on the industry to see if it's true or not so i made a couple versions of my resume again hundreds of applications but no calls and kept tweaking my resume until i started getting calls and doing this much ahead of time gave me that extra head start in learning what came out of that was there was this one company that gave me a call from indiana and it was for a co-op position and I, i i did reasonably well in the interview and they were like okay we are in the stage of an offer and they are like we need you to work 40 hours a week and the pre completion student work authorization allows you only to work 20 hours a week just to remind you this was a control systems intern position the same role that a lot of people were facing difficulty getting this was like a one in a million kind of opportunity for me so but you're restricted by the student visa at yes. at this point. So here's this great opportunity, but yes. your visa is restricting you. Yes. So I I called up the company and I'm like I can only work for 20 hours. I'm not allowed to work more than 20 hours. And they are like no, we absolutely need 40 hours. We'll have to rescind the offer. That's another sort of oh, wow, okay. Uh, moment for me. How did you recover from this? One thing that happened was in this application spree, at one point I didn't know who all I applied to. 
I literally applied to every job possible on the internet. And then when I got these calls back on some of those calls, I was like, can you please send me the job description to this position? Because I don't quite know which one you're responding for. <laughs> How did they respond when you would say that? Because we sometimes think that the recruiter wants to know that you are so passionate and committed to the job that you're applying for. And you pretty quickly were revealing the fact that you're on a spree and that you don't exactly remember. Did you find people having a negative response when you would say that? I mean, I would I would basically put it out as uh, I, I think I applied to a few different positions within your company, a few different similar positions. And can you please remind me so that I can do well in the interview? My goal is to do well in the interview. So I want to know which position you are hiring for. Recruiters want you to be successful. It's not like recruiters, you know, give you a call and then they're like, ah, gotcha. <laughs> That's such a good reminder, I think, for for people, because I think a lot of people do fear recruiters instead of having that mindset that you just had, which is, no, they've got a job to fill. They want you to be successful because if you're the right person, that's success for them as, exactly. as well. Exactly. And the whole incentive structure for most recruiters in the US, I believe, is also upon placement. So they're incentivized to actually place a person. So yeah, it's all, everything is going for you at that point. It, it's a really good, a really good reminder. So, we're in this spree of applying to hundreds of companies, hundreds of jobs. Did the Georgia opportunity? Yeah, pop yeah. Up? Thanks for thanks for bringing me back to the point. <laughs> uh, it's it's a long story, so I keep get, getting uh, deviated. So yeah, the Georgia thing actually happened because uh, one of these job applications that I submitted, they got back to me and they're like, "We want you to start working immediately if we hire you." And even before going through the interview process, I was like, I graduate in May and until May, I'm only able to work 20 hours. After that, I can work 40 hours full time. If we are not good with that, then I don't think we should waste each other's time, to be fair. And they were very accommodating and they were like, we understand totally. It's okay, 20 hours, and then we'll convert you into a full time and give you 40 hours. So interview went well. Then I got the offer. And then I started prepping to move to Atlanta in my third semester. And to be honest, I never thought that I would get a job even after my fourth semester or after my master's, not because I doubted my capabilities, but because that was the environment I was in. I mean, if there's one message to any international student listening to this, it's like, just, just do your part. Just keep pushing. This, this negativity comes from people who want to justify that it's hard. I'm not saying it's smooth sailing. It's definitely a challenge, but it's not something you can't do. There really is a difference between impossible and hard. And yes. to understand that something is hard doesn't mean that it's impossible, as your story is really proving. One thing I don't understand, Simon, and you can help me with this, is how does grad school in Arizona work when you've moved to Georgia? Yeah, in my fourth semester, I had one course remaining. And you're not supposed to take any online course in your last semester uh, for some reason. And I think that's a university specific restriction that they put. So I was like, okay, now how do I make this work? So I started looking through uh, all the courses possible. And one of the things that stood out was reading and conference where I worked under a professor and did the research and submitted a report. And at the end of the day, that report would count towards my graduation and I would get the credits. And that whole course counted as a non-online course. 
uh, at that point, it was an understanding between me and my professor and what we have set up between us to get things done. And he was an immigrant himself. So he understood the entire scenario. I was like, see, I have this great opportunity. I'm willing to work super hard to get you a really good end product, but I cannot be located here for all our meetings, but I can make frequent trips uh, to meet you in person. And he was super understanding. We made that relationship work. Good that I had only one course remaining, otherwise it would have been twice the trouble. At this point, you're in the US on a student visa. Would you have needed a different visa for this job after graduation? So the student visa comes with a 12-month work authorization attached to it after you graduate by default. And if you are uh, you know, in any of the STEM majors, uh, then you get another, um, back then it was 17 months additional, which then got changed to 24. But within those three years, you need to basically adjust to any work visa status. And the H-1B is the most popular of them. Tell me about the decision to stay in the U.S. and not go back to India. Was this a difficult decision for you? So um, to be fair, I didn't necessarily have anything against going back to India or going to any other country in the world. It was not necessarily that I saw my future in the U.S. and only the U.S. I was super confident that even if I went back to India, there would be opportunities that would welcome me. And also there is nothing that would prevent me from moving to India when it comes to stability of the country or stability of community or anything like that, the social factors. But what made me want to stay was that I'm not done yet. I didn't travel and go through all this just to at the end of the day, pack my bags and call it good. What did you do after you graduated? Did you end up staying with the company where you were working part-time? After that job in Atlanta, I got contacted by another small business in Atlanta, which was super, super rewarding because they wanted an engineer to revamp all their age-old equipment. And I became that engineer. It was like hardly a few months out of grad school and you get all controls efforts. I really learned a ton there. And all this happened within the span of like less than a year. And then before the next April, I had all this experience in and I was ready to move to Silicon Valley. Why did you decide to leave a company where you were having so much exposure and learning so much? It mainly had to do with where I was going to and the purpose of what the place I was going to serves in the world uh, and the leveraged impact I can have in the world through that company. And that company was Tesla. What really excited me was when I interviewed and really saw what the company was doing. It was not just like, hey, we got a cool car and we are going to build this cool car. It's more like, what are we going to do to change the face of energy consumption and generation uh, in the world? And that is defined as one of the top problems of the century. And I was like, it would be an honor to work on one of the top uh, problems that our generation is facing. What then was the actual experience like for you of of being at Tesla? What happened? So what I learned and did at Tesla was amazing in that I was focused on a certain part of the vehicle that was in a manufacturing stage. It was not necessarily a very research or early development stage it was in. What I had to innovate on was how do we make this thing super fast, efficiently? So that was what I was working on and I was super happy about it. But I was like, what is this it? After about two and a half years, you left Tesla. Tell me what pulled you away. 
So I am building the machine that builds a machine, but I want to be part of the first machine story to begin with. And uh, there was this opportunity that came across from Lyft. Lyft was founding its self-driving group back then, and uh, they were looking for talent. That opportunity looked exciting to me because it offered me the chance to be part of or drive a complete early stage development aspect of things. So uh, of the actual product, as opposed to, product. like we were just saying, not not the manufacturing of it, but actually the product. But this required you to move from being in an engineering role into more of a technical product manager role. So tell me, what was that transition, switching the function that you were in? Yeah. So as an engineer, you basically focus on, on getting things done, you know, either writing the code or doing the design and getting things working. But as a technical program manager, you you know, you need to know the technical nature of the product that you are running or you know helping build, and you also need to at the same time know how to rally people around it and how to give them a good direction as to where we are going and how their work is important in the bigger picture. And I, I, I'm not going to lie, I really, really got inspired by a lot of great leaders at Tesla, including, uh, of course, Elon. The way they rally people around a common end purpose, that was what I really brought to Lyft, in my opinion, that helped me be successful over there. Like coming in and saying, okay, why do we even exist? Why do we even have to do this? It is X, Y, and Z. And then this is how your work goes into this. And when you keep iterating this day after day after day, you keep seeing a sense of purpose and cohesion within your teams. How confident were you moving into this type of role? Uh, it was it was honestly a, a challenge for me to even fathom that I could sort of steer people. But then I just I just jumped jumped into it because the opportunity was super exciting. And at the end of the day, I think uh, a lot of what I learned at Tesla when it comes to great people showing their leadership skills in getting something done really helped me. So now that you're in this type of a role where you are doing the more, how do I motivate other people? How do I get people focused on the mission and on that vision? Have you found that this type of role plays to your strengths? What have you discovered about yourself in this role? So I am an engineer by nature. So even though you know I'm in these roles, I always try to roll my sleeves and work with the engineers on ways that they can do certain things. And that's basically what keeps me going. Helping people design like good, smart solutions for certain problems really keeps me going. I usually use that as my core competency. And then I look at it as what can I bring to the table to hold all of these people together and make a certain thing happen. And different different technical program managers are different in the way they operate. Some of them are totally hands-off on the technical side and they just care about the milestones being met. But it troubles me if a certain milestone is not met and I don't help the engineer or anyone working on that problem to the best of my technical ability as well. So about a year ago, you moved into a technical product manager role at Neuro. So it sounds like that role is similar to the role that you had at Lyft. What was it about the opportunity at Neuro that drew you away from Lyft? Uh, I think the, the single largest thing that really excited me about Neuro is, uh, again, the mission of Neuro, which is to accelerate the benefit of uh, robotics in everyday life. There's a very specific application that uh, the company is doing. 
and at the same time the company has a broad vision of doing good to humanity so i think it's it's this focus on getting something specific done yet maintaining the larger vision that really got me excited i do have to say so i'm in mountain view which is where neuro is is based so i do know the autonomous vehicles they're working on now so i've seen the first product some test vehicles drive by but it's super exciting to hear that the bigger vision is this robotics in everyday life so as we've been talking about you going from the um, jobs that you had in georgia to coming to tesla then lyft and now now neuro it's as if that has been rather linear but you always have your hand in more than one thing. So you also have been an entrepreneur at the same time that you've been doing these. Tell me about the projects that you've had on the side while you've been doing these larger companies. Yeah. So um, one of the startups that I started was a waste management internet of things startup called Hygia. That was pretty much the first time I was doing something after the swag business I was doing in India, right? And and this was interesting because I met my co-founder. He, he worked for a company in Mountain View. Uh, and I was like, okay, what is it that we can do that brings together our expertises? Okay, we wanted to do something in IoT. We wanted to do something in waste management because that's a big problem. So how do we do it? And then we just came up with like a super janky $100 prototype bought something from fries and just put some sensors together and uh, we just applied to entrepreneurship competitions like crazy and we got selected actually one of the most memorable things i i would never forget is we applied to the mayor's cup in uh, university of southern california and we got into that and we went to the finals and this was basically a citywide development initiative created by the mayor of los angeles mayor eric garcetti and we got a chance to interact with the mayor and understand what the city's problems are it was really humbling how you know a couple of years ago I was wondering if I would even make it in the US. And then here I am sitting with the mayor of Los Angeles uh, discussing ways to improve sanitation in the city. What motivates you to do the side projects while you've got these big jobs at these big companies? There are multiple things. On the onset, it might in general look like okay, yeah, there's there's this thing I'm trying out. And then if this thing works, then I'm not going to do the other thing and jump onto this and stuff like that. But for me, it's not that. It's just that I like to have different streams of knowledge being gained at the same time. And I think that the knowledge I gain through these different streams become useful to each other. So it's like people have hobbies all the time and people have ways to relax and people sometimes have ways to take out their frustration from the other job. And this is my way. It's my, it's my ongoing experiment of finding myself. That's to me like one of the just joys of, of life. I want to go back to talking about visas. So around the time that you got the job at Neuro was the time that you got your Einstein visa. Tell me about this. What was the process and why was this even important to you to get an Einstein visa? It basically all started when Tesla filed for an H-1B the first time in 2016. And uh, that was an unsuccessful attempt because my application did not get picked in the lottery. I had like one more chance at the H-1B visa. But in general, I was like, Okay, so I have like one year and if I if I don't get the H1B in, in the next year, then game over. So 
I took this up as like a legitimate problem to solve. It's not like, oh no, like, you know, H1B is unfair or anything. And I'm not the one to be talking about that. I was like, okay, so this is reality. In another year, there's another attempt. If that doesn't go through, game over. Uh, at least game over in the US. So what is it that I can do to improve my situation here? And I went back to what is it that I already have? And I looked through every single classification of visas and every single classification of anything that lets you stay in the US. I started looking for extraordinary ability visas. The US deliberately has a certain classification of visas for people who prove that they are the cream of the cream in a certain area that they are at the top of, exceptional talent in a certain area. And I was like, this sounds really interesting. Is it possible for me to focus on one area and re- become really, really good at that and claim for this special benefit in that category? So I set a full game plan for myself saying, okay, what are the things that I'm really good at already? What are the all the evidence that I have already uh, proving some things here? And then I started like diving deeper into the problem. Like, okay, what extra do I need to do to meet the evidentiary criteria around what I'm good at already? And one thing led to the other. And, you know, to be fair, being an entrepreneur actually exposed me to a lot of network in the Valley. There was a time when I would spend every evening after my work at Tesla, going to meetups, just trying to meet people, just trying to understand what's happening in general, but also develop that connection. There's a lot of these connections that I developed that I could then leverage. What if that person is hosting a conference? I need to create that opportunity for that person to invite me as a guest speaker. So there was a certain thing that I established myself as good at, and I started looking for ways to get recognition for that. So basically, it all boils down to this, this EB1, A visa. These actually look for A, you need to be in the top of your field and you need to have evidence to prove that. And B, you need to have sustained recognition and a claim in that space. So, yeah, I mean, what is it that I could lose? I had nothing to lose. At the same time, everything to gain, because in this process, I was building my reputation. I was also building my case. I was building my knowledge of the area. Uh, I was building the artifacts that pointed back to me. So it would only do good to me. It's so interesting because what it sounds like is you took the same drive that you have around your entrepreneurship and applied it to this challenge now as well. And basically said, it's a type of business that I'm building, but the product is me. I'm creating this best me that will then qualify for this visa and a very deliberate effort. Again, I'm going to say it's very impressive because you were doing this at the same time that you not only had a job, but you also had these other side hustles. I'll, I'll be honest, the, the day I decided to do this and me diving deep and me deliberately talking to a lot of people, making things happen, I barely slept, I think like four or maximum five hours for all that one and a half years until I actually put my application in. And I knew it was worth it because otherwise for people from India, the wait time for getting a green card under the EB2 or EB3 is somewhere to the north of two decades. So I've got one more question for you about your Einstein visa, because one thing I know about you is that with getting your EB1A, you've been inspired to want to help other people pursue this option. Tell me more about what you're doing in that regard. 
So uh, a lot of people have actually reached out to me because in their minds, the Einstein visa or the EB1A is only reserved for like Nobel laureates or Olympic medalists or people with PhDs. I have none of those. And I was able to legitimately build my profile up uh, and qualify for that. There's a lot of either a lack of information or misinformation going on about this. I, I am currently building uh, like a course purely from my experience. It's not a cutting ed- edge legal advice or anything like that. I'm not an attorney. Purely from my experience around like what I did to qualify for this visa so that that experience can help them and uh, uh, they can benefit from it. In addition to all that you've been doing, because you are you, you also have yet another side project. Tell me about that. Uh, Around this time last year in 2020, my good friend that I know from undergrad days, Anish Hegde, uh, and I got together to build Resume Puppy. And this is mainly to help people come up with really well-made resumes. One of the uh, issues we find immigrants face, and in general, most people face, is expressing everything that you have done in one letter-sized sheet of paper in a very nice articulate manner that people would love to read and give you a call. So it's one thing to do great work at your workplace, and it's another to market yourself on a resume. So we are building tools that help people do the latter part well, because we want them to focus on all the great work that they've done, bring all the great work that they've done, and leave all the other aspects to us. It has been fascinating finding out how you got to where you are today with all of these different elements. I have just three more questions to ask you. I call these the lightning round. So my first question is, what would you say is the smartest career move you made, whether intentionally or accidentally? I think in the grand scheme of things, joining Tesla at an earlier point in my career. And I tell this with abstraction because by Tesla, I mean a company that is super, super mission-driven, is very fast-paced, isn't afraid to do crazy things. And at points, you don't know what is going on, but yet you figure things out. Being subjected to that environment or subjecting myself to that environment, in my case, it was Tesla. I I can't express how much valuable it was to me uh, in my future. If you could have one do-over, what would it be and why? In retrospect, uh, when I look at all the mistakes that I've, I've done, these are all simple things that I should have understood by going down to the basics of things. And it would have been obvious why I did those mistakes. So not thinking in a more basic level is, I think, something I would want to change. And then my last question for you, Simon, how do you define success for yourself? One of the things I always measure myself by is how much I continue to learn. So I want to keep learning and I want to keep either through advising or through products that I build, help people through whatever experience I've gained and uh, make things better for uh, everyone around me. So that's basically what drives me and uh, that's my metric of success. Well, Simon, thank you so much for sharing your story. You've got a long career ahead of you. I look forward to seeing all the places that you go. uh, And maybe we'll even have to have you back to tell that next part of the story. But thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. A quick epilogue. I'm excited to share that Simon has released his course, Smart Green Card. We've placed a link to this and to Resume Puppy on our website, careercurves.com. While there, check out some of our past episodes. We've built up quite the collection since launching in 2019. Finally, if you like what we're doing, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts and tell others about the podcast. 
We'd love to grow our audience. And these are some ways you can help. That's it for this episode. As always, thanks for listening.